All right, well, as we look at this passage, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, we are grateful that you are our good shepherd. We thank you for all the ways that you lovingly and tenderly care for and shepherd us and lead us. And especially as we look at this passage this morning, we ask that you would give us an increased awareness of the ways that you shepherd us and care for us and the ways that you abundantly provide for us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in a unique and special way right now as we together sit under your word. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus clearly. We pray that you would help us to uh, leave here today with a desire to be changed people because of what we've heard and because of what you've done for us. And so we pray that you would do that inside of us and we cannot accomplish that on our own. And so we pray for the working of your spirit here this morning in a unique and in a powerful way. Let me pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We all have things that we know to be true in our head, but we functionally struggle to believe in our behavior. I've been rock climbing a handful of times, some of those in a gym type of setting, some of those outdoors on like real rocks, and it doesn't matter how many times someone tells me about the weight rating of the rope, and it doesn't matter how many times people tell me about just how secure the anchors are, I always, without hesitation, uh, just don't want to lean back (laughs) and have someone help me descend. That's assuming I get to the top, of course. (laughs) But just functionally, I know that it's safe. And yet my body doesn't believe it's actually safe, right? Uh, For some people, it doesn't matter how many statistics you know about the safety of airplanes. It doesn't matter if you know that it's statistically far more likely for you to die in a car accident than to die in some sort of plane accident. You get on an airplane and you always have the feeling of anxiety during takeoff, and your throat is in your, or your heart is in your throat, rather, as you uh, look out and you're at cruising altitude and the wings and the wind are flexing up and down like this and it just, uh, it just leaves you uh, filled with panic and fear. doesn't matter how much you know intellectually that airplanes are safe. Your body doesn't agree with that. <laughs> and so you struggle to believe in the way that your body actually lives uh, that that's actually true. Uh, some of you, if you're married or if you uh, live with roommates, Some of you struggle to sleep at night if no one is there with you. And you know that there's nothing that makes your house or your apartment more sort of inherently secure or safe because there's another person in a different room. 
But every single noise you hear, every single creak, every single little thing that you hear when no one else is there, all of a sudden, like your mind is just racing. And it's like, well, did I just hear that? And what was that? Am I being robbed? Is someone breaking in? Am I going to die? And so you sort of go through this. You just become this sort of little hot mess laying there in bed. You know that you're safe. And yet, functionally, it's hard to believe in that moment that you're safe. And so we all have these things like this. You can identify maybe something like that in your own life. We all have things that we know to be true, but functionally struggle to believe. This is true in so many areas of life, and it's also true in our relationship with God. That there are so many things that we know intellectually to be true about who he is and what he's like and how he, uh, what his heart is like towards us, and we functionally struggle to believe those things. And this is actually what it means to be an apprentice or a disciple of Jesus is that you enter the lifelong process of learning to bring your behavior and your attitudes and your motives and your thoughts and your actions in alignment with what you know to be true about who God is. And so we all have these areas in our life where we struggle to believe what is true. As we look at this passage today, we see uh, this passage revealing for us a few different aspects of Jesus's identity. And my guess is that you're not going to leave here today saying, I never knew that. This is brand new information to me. I never knew that before. You're probably going to leave here saying, well, yeah, I already kind of knew that. But every single one of us is going to leave here today saying, in the process of taking what we know to be true about Jesus's identity and actually functionally living like it's true. And so that's the situation that we find ourselves in today. And so we are going to look at this passage and see what it tells us about Jesus's identity. And we rely on God to help us uh, learn to live in light of what we know to be true about who he is. So let's look here and see these two aspects of Jesus's identity that we see here. Uh, The first aspect of Jesus's identity that we see here is that he is our compassionate shepherd. We see this in the way that Jesus interacts with both the crowd and his disciples. So first his disciples, he has just sent them out on this mission and they've gone out for the first time to do ministry apart from the physical presence of Jesus being there with them. So Jesus sent them out in his name, in his authority to do ministry. And we don't know exactly how long they were gone. It was certainly more than just a few days, probably a couple weeks, maybe a couple months or longer. We don't know. But we do know that they were sent out in Jesus's name and in his authority. And they preached that people should repent. And they casted out demons and they anointed people with oil and healed them. And so Jesus' disciples are at this moment coming back to Jesus and they are coming back from what was surely a mountaintop experience. They saw God work in incredible ways and saw God work through them in ways that they had never seen or experienced before. And they're coming back from this mountaintop experience and they're tired. They're in need of rest. They come back from this ministry trip and it tells us that they were there and there's crowds forming and there were so many more needs pressing in around them that they didn't even have time to eat and to take care of their own most basic needs. And so Jesus says to them in verse 31, come away with me to a quiet place. Let's go get some rest. What I find so encouraging about that is that Jesus did not tell them to suck it up. He didn't guilt them or shame them for being tired. He recognized their physical needs and their emotional and relational needs to like get away from people. <laughs> and Jesus didn't do what many of us, uh, what many people m- may even think that Jesus would have said, which is, this is the kingdom of God we're talking about here, people. 
Don't you know the urgency of the message? And don't you know the urgency of what's, what's on the line? And this message has to get out and there's work to be done. There's people to be reached. What are you doing sitting down? What are you doing resting? What are you doing uh, taking time away and going to be by yourself? This is the kingdom of God we're talking about here. And yet Jesus does not do that. Jesus invites his disciples into the most restful thing that they could have possibly experienced. He invited them to come sit in his presence. That's what Jesus did here. Jesus is our compassionate shepherd. And we see him here shepherding his disciples in that. We also see him shepherding the crowd. Jesus and his disciples, he took them to go get rest. He left the crowd behind got into a boat, and they were sort of going along the shoreline. And as they're going along the shoreline, there's people that are following them. And there's people that are from the other towns and villages along the way are coming out, and they're seeing where Jesus is going, and they're maybe anticipating where he's going to go. And so they actually are running ahead of Jesus and his disciples in the boat, and they meet him where he's going. And so they have gotten in the boat to try and get away from the people and to get away from the crowd. And by the time they land, there's already a crowd there waiting for them. And so what Jesus could have done is he could have said, okay, we're going to shove off and we're going to go to a different location. We're going to try again. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. What Jesus, what it tells us about Jesus is that he looked at the crowd that was gathered there and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Virtually all scholars recognize the, uh, the hyperlink, the illusion that's there in the language of sheep without a shepherd. Uh, back to the book of Ezekiel. It's very clear in Ezekiel chapter uh, 34 and 35 and 36, um, 34 in particular, where there's this word of indictment against the leaders of the nation of Israel who were called shepherds because they are abandoning their responsibilities. They are not leading the people by the instruction of the Lord. Rather, they are doing what is right in their own eyes. They're leading in selfish ways. And so as a result, the people in the nation of Israel are functionally like sheep without a shepherd. And so there's this word of judgment and condemnation against the leaders of the nation of Israel. I'll just read a few verses from Ezekiel 34, where God says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. He goes on to say in verse 11, This is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them. From all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness, I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And so this is a scathing word of indictment against the leaders of the nation of Israel for failing to lead in the way that they are supposed to. And what we see here is this picture of God's judgment that he's speaking against these leaders. But then he also says, there will come a time when I will come to myself, be the shepherd of my people. 
So when Jesus looks out over this crowd of people who are gathering around to hear his teaching and to, and to be with him, Jesus has a picture in his mind, a snapshot of Ezekiel 34. And so Jesus looks at these people as sheep without a shepherd. He looks at them as a nation without godly leadership. And so what does he do? He shepherds them. And how does Jesus shepherd them in this moment? What does he do? Say more. He teaches them many things. He doesn't feed them yet. We'll get there. But Jesus sees that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he taught them many things. So when Jesus looks at this crowd of people, he recognizes that the most urgent need that they have is not first and foremost to have their stomachs filled, but to sit underneath the teaching of the word of God. He recognizes that what they most need is to hear the message of the kingdom. That's what he's been going around announcing. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That is what Jesus sees as their most urgent need and he shepherds them by teaching them. The same exact thing is true of us today that Jesus shepherds us by his teaching. That's one of the main ways that we are shepherded by God is we sit under his teaching. Now, of course, we have the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that record for us the actions and the words of Jesus. But we also have more than just that. We have the entire Bible, 66 books written over the course of a couple thousand years, written by various different authors that tell us the story of God saving activity in the world and how he's come to rescue humanity and how he's promised to make all things new. And so we have not only the teaching of Jesus, we have the teaching of Jesus in the larger storyline of God's entire redemptive work in history. And as we read that story and as we immerse ourselves in that story, and as that story becomes ours, that's one of the ways that God shepherds us today. And this is why we are convinced that a regular, regular rhythm of reading the Bible is a non-negotiable part of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. Jesus shepherds us with his teaching. And what a privilege it is that we have the entire Bible in so many different formats and so many different translations with so many different resources to help us understand it. This is one of the ways that he shepherds us. So we see this picture of Jesus as our compassionate shepherd, but he's not only that, he is also our abundant provider. So Jesus here did more than just teach them. We see in verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already late. Send the people away that they may go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I think that at this point, the disciples just want the people to go away. My guess is that they are, uh, there's a little bit of like frustration beginning to breed inside of their hearts where they're like, we just were out on this mission. We've just given and given and given and given and we come back and there's more people and they're surrounding us and we try and leave those people and we just can't get away from the people. And they're like, Jesus, will you please just send them away? That's their plan. Just like, we just get rid of the people. Jesus has a different plan. Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. Here's what I think is happening here. I think that in this moment in time, the disciples, they don't exact, they're not exactly filled with like warm feelings towards the crowd. And by telling his disciples to be the ones to solve the food problem, Jesus is inviting his disciples to have compassion on the crowds. 
Jesus himself has demonstrated compassion on the crowds. His compassion for them is obvious. He looks at them and he doesn't see someone who's getting in the way of his rest. Someone who's getting in the way of his retreating with his disciples. He sees the crowds and his heart is filled with compassion for them. So his disposition, his very posture towards the crowds is one of compassion and love. And then he gives of himself by teaching them. And so Jesus' compassion for the crowds is obvious, but not so much with the disciples. They kind of just want the crowds to go away. But Jesus, by telling them to solve the food situation, is saying to his disciples, I want you also to desire their good. Instead of viewing them as an interruption to your life, instead of viewing them as an interruption to what you feel like you most need right now, which is a retreat, which by the way, Jesus has affirmed they do need that retreat. He's saying, I want you to look at the crowds and I want you to have compassion on them in the same way that I have compassion on them. The disciples' response is what you might expect from the disciples. They say, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much money on bread and give it to them to eat? So the disciples here are exasperated and facing a need that could not be met by their limited human resources. And then what Jesus tells them next sounded absolutely crazy to them. They say, send these people away. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They say, that's going to take way too much money. How are we supposed to do that? Jesus says, well, go see how much food you have. And they're probably thinking, my goodness. What do you think we're going to find, Jesus? Do you think we're going to find like a broken Sarah Lee truck? (laughs) You know, a broken down truck on the side of the road over there and be able to just like get a bunch of food? You think that these people just like have food in their pockets, loaves of bread they forgot they had? What do you mean go see how much food you have? Even if we found all the food that was here and scrounged all of it up, do you think it would be enough to feed 5,000 plus people? They go out and they scrounge up five loaves of bread and two little fish. And they bring it to Jesus. And I wonder if they're bringing it to Jesus, if in their posture they, they set it before him and said, see? Does this prove to you, Jesus, that we need to send them away now? Can we just get on with this? (laughs) But what Jesus does is he says, have the people sit down in groups. So they sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Jesus took the bread that they did have and he gave thanks for it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and they gave it to all the people and they kept distributing the bread and distributing the bread and distributing the bread and distributing the bread. (laughs) And it says that everyone ate and was satisfied. If you take five loaves of bread, there's probably about 5,000 crumbs in there. The people here didn't get like a morsel of bread. They didn't get like a crumb of bread. It says they all ate and were satisfied. Their stomachs were full. Oh, and by the way, there were leftovers. So what we see here is that Jesus, unlike his disciples who are exasperated and facing a need that could not be met by their own limited human resources, unlike his disciples, Jesus is overflowing with compassion and easily able to meet the needs that were, humanly speaking, impossible to meet. With resources that were, humanly speaking, insufficient resources. Jesus has compassion on the crowds and is entirely able to meet those needs. So these are the two things that we see coming together in this passage. We see Jesus' compassionate heart 
in his unmatched ability to provide for the needs of the people. Those are the two main things that we need to just sort of snapshot in our mind. Jesus' compassionate heart for the crowds and his unmatched ability to provide for the needs of the people. As Mark records it for us, Jesus, throughout his ministry, never comes out and directly says, I am God. If you read the book of John, you see more claims like this coming from Jesus. But in the book of Mark, Jesus never comes out and directly says, I'm God, or says it in those ways. What Jesus does is he proves and demonstrates and reveals his divine identity by his actions. So Jesus doesn't say to the paralyzed man, I'm God. He says, your sins are forgiven, which is only something God can do. And so he forgives his sin, which demonstrates that he's God. And here, in the same exact way, we see Jesus doing things. He's not overtly, you know, saying the words, I'm God. But when Jesus does this thing where he feeds 5,000 people a bunch of bread, we're supposed to be able to put the pieces together and see that this is revealing to us Jesus' divine identity. So just get in your mind what the situation is here in this passage. There's a group of people, and they are in the wilderness. That's sort of obscured by our English translations, because our English translations translate things in a way so that we can understand them easily. And so sometimes that can uh, sort of make word connections uh, not as obvious. So when Jesus says, come to a quiet place, and they went away to a solitary place, and his disciples say, this is a remote place, that's those three ways of saying it are the translation of one Greek word in the original that is the word for desert or wilderness. It's the same exact word that's used in chapter one when it says John the Baptist was in the wilderness baptizing people. It's the same exact word that's used when it says the spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness, into the desert. And so three times in this passage, there's this language of the desert, the wilderness, and you're like, okay, he, he's trying to emphasize something here. So there's a group of people who are in the wilderness and they experience a miraculous provision of bread. What are we supposed to be making a connection to in our minds as readers? The Exodus. When God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, they didn't have enough food, and so God miraculously provided for the food that they needed in abundance. And so Jesus here is not just being revealed as a miracle worker. There's plenty of other people in in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Elijah, Elisha. There's plenty of people in the Bible who did miracles and no one thought they were God. This is not setting Jesus up just as some sort of ordinary miracle worker, like a human being through whom the miraculous power of God is just like mightily at work. This is showing us, it's revealing Jesus' divine identity. He is God. The same one who provided bread for the people, who provided manna for the people in the wilderness, is now standing in the middle of this crowd doing it again. He's standing in the middle of this crowd in the person of Jesus, once again providing bread for the people in abundance in the middle of the wilderness, even though they didn't deserve it. So Jesus' divine identity is being revealed to us here through this. And remember that in the wilderness, God provided more than just bread, right? He didn't just bring the people into the wilderness so he could give them bread. 
He brought them into the wilderness and gave them what else? His instruction, his teaching. He gave them the word of God. And so Jesus here in the wilderness with the people doesn't just give them bread. What does he give them? He gives them the word of God. He teaches them. This is exactly what Moses is talking about when in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 8, he's recounting the story and saying, remember when God led you out into the wilderness and supplied you with manna in order to test you so that you might know experientially at a heart level that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so here in the wilderness, we have Jesus providing bread and providing the word of God for his people. And so Jesus here, his divine identity is being revealed for us. Jesus is our compassionate shepherd. He sees us not only in our physical hunger. He sees us in the deep inner hungers of our heart. He sees the deep inner longings of our heart. He sees our need to be seen. He understands our need to be heard and to be understood and to be loved and to be accepted. He sees that and he knows that. And he extends compassion towards us. He sees every area of brokenness in our lives. He sees every pattern of sin. He sees every area of addiction. He sees every area where we have looked to something or someone else to provide for us, but only God can provide. He sees every pattern of brokenness, every way that we are disjointed, every way that our lives are not in alignment with how God has designed us. He sees all of that. And instead of being repulsed by that, which is the reaction that some of us might have to other people who are broken, instead of being repulsed by our brokenness, Jesus moves towards us in love. Jesus is full of compassion. And in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of all the neediness of our heart, the longings of our heart, in the midst of all those things, Jesus moves towards us and Jesus is filled with compassion for us. He is our compassionate shepherd. Not only this, he is our abundant provider. And of course, he does provide for our physical needs, which are important. Not at all downplaying the significance of physical needs for food and shelter and clothing and all those things. Those are important things. And God desires to and delights to provide for us. And in our particular cultural environment, he has provided in excess, in abundance for us, for those things. So God certainly delights to care for our physical needs. But the deepest needs that we have are not physical needs. The deepest need that we have in our heart is to be made right with God. The deepest need that we have is for our hearts to be made alive to the things of God. The deepest need that we have in our hearts is for ourselves to be able to, to be in the presence of God who is the source of life. That is the deepest needs of our heart. And Jesus did not come to give us bread. Jesus came to give us himself. In other words, Jesus is not just our abundant provider. Jesus himself is the provision. Jesus himself is the one who is the ultimate gift. The, the deepest need we have is to, is to receive and to, and to have Jesus. And so Jesus is not just a source of provision for us who gives us something else. Jesus gives us himself. 
He sees us in all the brokenness and he's filled with compassion. He sees our deepest heart needs and he's made a way for us to have those needs met by drawing near to us. He's not repulsed by our brokenness. He loves us in the midst of our brokenness and has given himself. He went to the cross for us so that those deepest needs could be met and so that he could demonstrate for us and prove to us the magnitude of his compassion for us. So he is our compassionate shepherd. He is our abundant provider. Again, my guess is that most of you would leave here today saying, I know that. So the question for you to ponder this week is, is this. Which aspect of Jesus's identity do I functionally find more difficult to believe? That he is my compassionate shepherd or that he is my abundant provider? Which of those two aspects, if you're honest, do you say, I functionally in the way I live, I struggle to believe that. You may look at your circumstances and you may say, I'm so often living with a sense of where is God in this? What is God doing? Does God care for me? Does God love me? Does he not see what's happening? Why isn't he doing something? When is he going to do something? And you may say, you know, if I'm honest, I functionally struggle to believe that God is my compassionate shepherd, that he loves me, and that even in the midst of and even through those difficulties, those are his shepherding tool in my life. In what ways do you maybe struggle to believe that? Do you struggle to believe that more, or do you functionally struggle to believe that he is your abundant provider? You struggle to believe that when you realize areas of discontent in your life and in your heart. When you say, God hasn't provided this, he hasn't given me this, I'm disappointed about this, I wish this was different in my life, and all the things that just gnaw at your sense of contentment, those things are functional unbelief in the fact that Jesus is your abundant provider and he has given you every good thing that you need. And so you may find yourself saying, uh, I, I struggle to believe that deeply and functionally, that Jesus is my abundant provider. And so what we have to do with this then is once you've sort of sat with that question, which of these aspects of Jesus's identity do I functionally more struggle to believe to be true? Then the next step is, okay, process that in the presence of God. Take that into the presence of God and process and pray those feelings which is what keeps it from becoming discontent, right? If we, if we just have those feelings of I, I feel discontent, I feel like God isn't here, I feel like he's not working, and we just sort of sit with those things inwardly and don't bring those to him in prayer, that's where those things turn into unhealthy, sinful thoughts and behaviors. But when we bring those things into the presence of God and process those with him, we're not accusing him, we're opening our hearts to him. And so that's what we have to do is we have to take those areas of unbelief and bring those to God and say, I am so struggling with this. This, this is eating my lunch right now. And we have to just be able to bring those things into the presence of God and process those things with him. And also include other people in that too. Letting other people know about those things who can encourage you and who can help you and can help uh, remind you of the good news about who Jesus is. That's a part of it as well. So we bring these things into the presence of God and we process them through prayer. 
And a second way that we can that we can deal with that is we as we do each week, we can come to the communion table. Where what we see is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Which is the physical reminder, in the same way that the bread in the wilderness was a kind of nourishment that pointed to a deeper nourishment that the people actually needed. The bread and the juice that we consume today points us to a greater reality than just the bread and the juice that's in front of us. It points us to Jesus, who has given his life in place of ours, which shows us the lengths to which God was willing to go to demonstrate his unfathomable compassion and love for us. The cross and, and, and the elements of communion remind us and they preach to us, he is your compassionate shepherd. Look at how far he was willing to go to extend compassion and mercy and grace to you. And so we get to receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus as the clearest example of the compassionate mercy of God given for us. And it also is a demonstration that God is our abundant provider, that he has provided for our deepest needs. He doesn't just give us physical nourishment. He gives us the deep heart, spiritual soul nourishment that we all need. And through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus has broken the power of sin over us, has cleansed us from our sins so that we can once again be in the presence of God. And so the communion elements remind us of Jesus as our compassionate shepherd. They remind us of Jesus as our abundant provider. And so yes, we need to take these things in the presence of God and we also need to functionally believe it by taking a step of faith to come forward and to receive the elements and say, I believe it. I trust you, Jesus. And so it's through the communion table that we once again give ourselves to Jesus and it's an act of faith. We don't fully believe functionally what we believe to be true in our heads. And when we come forward for communion, we say, God, would you close the gap? Would you take the things I know to be true in my lived experience and would you make those things one? That's what we're asking God to do. And so as we come to the communion table today, it's appropriate for us to spend a few moments in confession and reflection. So I'm going to leave a few minutes for that right now and then we will celebrate Christ by coming to the communion table. So let's take a few moments of confession and reflection.